Our scripture reading is from Hebrews verse 11, uh, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to set out for a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he set out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he stayed for a time in the land he had been promised, as in a foreign land, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. These are the words of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today we are starting a new series. We have a new graphic that Hannah made, and she made it so that um, it looks like an old-fashioned photo album, if you ever had one like that when you were a kid. And then it has the roots of the trees connected to each other on purpose, because we're going to be talking about the roots of our faith who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. And so uh, I wanted to tell a story about the women's retreat. Uh, At the women's retreat, I was trying to get the ladies to talk to people that they didn't know very well. And so I pulled out one of my youth group tricks. And so I gave them a little thing. Some of them were silly, like find someone who wears the same brand of deodorant you do, right? And so they're getting these little clumps based on their deodorant. And so as I'm trying to think of ways to divide them up, I'm running out of ideas. And I can't remember if it was Linda or Hannah said, denomination they grew up in. And so we divided into denominations that they grew up in, and it was so funny uh, to watch them uh, interact with each other, and uh, the Baptists were having all this fun talking about what it was like to be Baptist. And um, it was funny uh, because, unsurprising, the largest group were Methodists and grown up in the Methodist church. But the second largest group was like six or seven women, and they had all grown up in the Roman Catholic church. And I was surprised that was the largest uh, group that came outside of Methodism. But I know many, many people in this church who grew up in the Catholic church, and they're some of my very favorite Methodists. And so uh, today, as we begin this series, um, Christianity's Family Tree, we're going to look back at the beginning of the Christian faith and how we have gotten uh, split into so, so many different kinds of churches. Every year at confirmation, the kids always ask that question, why are there so many churches? Uh, So Pastor Charlotte and I were talking about it, and her metaphor was flavors of ice cream. Now, I don't know about you, but I love ice cream. And, um, the, and not just one kind of ice cream. I like lots of different flavors of ice cream. And she uses the metaphor that the body of Christ, even though we're all one body, we all have different flavors of styles of worship and expressions and things like that. I'll be honest with you, there are flavors of ice cream I do not like, but uh, they're not ones I would choose to eat. So I want to go back to the very beginning. Let's see if I can get my clicker to work here. Um, To the scripture today, which reminded us of this covenant with Abraham, that God was doing something new. And he asked Abraham to take a risk, take his wife Sarah, and go leave the land and their family and their, all of their relations and go and do something new. And so this faithful covenant between God and his people lasted for 2,000 years. This is the very beginning. 
Well, then we get to the part of the story that is our favorite part, Jesus is born. Now, Jesus is born a good Jewish son, and uh, you know the story about how his family takes him to the temple, and he is dedicated, and so he is raised learning and immersing himself in the Hebrew scriptures. He's a good Jewish boy. And then, when he is about 30 years old, is our best guess, he has this experience where he is being baptized by his cousin John in the River Jordan, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. Now, we can talk about why was Jesus being baptized when there was no such thing as Christianity. We're going to have to do that on another time. But um, the baptism uh, that John, if you read the scriptures, was doing was one of repentance. Well, Jesus didn't need to repent from anything, but he has this powerful and holy experience that's in all four of the Gospels that talks about this descent of the Spirit that launches Jesus into ministry. And so his ministry begins, it lasts for about three years before he is put to death. And after he is put to death, he tells his leaders and the people that he has been in relationship with and taught that he wants them to go out and um, to teach the things that he taught them. But here's the thing. When Jesus first started his ministry, he he only had his ministry with the people like him, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. And then along the way, he extended that barrier to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, people like us. And he extended that barrier, and guess what happened? Just like Abraham, who started something new, Jesus started something new. It was a whole new thing. And this combination of people who were Hebrew and people who were not created this new thing. Now, we still study the scriptures that Jesus studied. We still have some of our worship patterns that come from Judaism. Some of our organizational structure even is from Judaism. But in that beginning, when Jesus extended outside of the covenantal community, he created the new covenant, the new beginning with people that were different. And so this became, as some people called it, uh, the early followers were called the Nazarenes because Jesus was Jesus of Nazareth. Or my favorite name was the way. Uh, that comes from the scriptures, the way of Jesus. And then, of course, another name for those early believers were the Christians who were followers of Jesus the Christ. So this movement grew, but it was being persecuted. It was very hard. It was sort of an underground movement. And then under uh, an emperor, Uh, Constantine, who ruled from 306 to 330, uh, he made Christianity legal. So for the very first time, people could uh, worship out in the open, and uh, it continued to grow and grow, this new thing. So we have about 300 years of Christianity that is beginning to flourish, and then guess what happens? people start to argue about the right way to do it and the wrong way to do it. There was a most famous one would probably be Marcion, who had a group of followers and was teaching about Jesus. And the people were saying that that wasn't what Jesus was about, that Jesus was about this. And so what happened is they gathered together with the leaders of all of the churches in the the area, and they had the Council of Nicaea. 
Now, if you went to 11 o'clock worship, you would on occasion say the Nicene Creed. We don't do that in this service, but we still use that creed today. And so in this time, about the same time historically, we also have them determining which of the scrolls uh, will be part of the New Testament. Now remember, we study all of the scriptures that Jesus studied, the Hebrew Bible, or you may call it the Old Testament, and then they decided what are the things that are sacred and holy that we add to this to be the New Testament. This is all happening around the same time that the Nicene Creed is being written. And so this beautiful uh, determination of what was orthodoxy the word orthodoxy means right teaching happens, and we kind of get these guidelines for what it means to be a Christian. So that lasts for a thousand years. A thousand years, nobody argued about what color the carpet in the sanctuary should be, or the right way to worship versus the wrong way to worship, or what kind of music they should have at church. And the church spread, and it flourished, and it grew for about a thousand years. What happened was you had the development in the East, in the Greek-speaking churches, and you had development in the West, in the Latin-speaking churches. They each had bishops who were the heads of those churches, and there created this sort of tension between the East and the West. And so you'll never guess. Well, maybe you know the rest of the story. But what happened in the middle of this tension over which uh, the bishops was the leader of the church was those Western churches got together and they added three little words to the Nicene Creed. And the Eastern churches were furious. They could not believe that they would change the creed without including everyone at the table. Does anybody know what those words are? and the sun, S-O-N, and the sun. You see, in the Nicene Creed, we state what we believe, uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the last section, the Holy Spirit section, we say the Holy Spirit is descended from the Father, and then the Western churches added, and the Son. And so we get our first church split over these three words, and where does the Holy Spirit descend? And we are divided into two uh, churches, and the Eastern Church, who did not add those three words, they, they claim the name orthodoxy. They say we're doing it like we always have, and that's the right way, and so they claim the name orthodoxy. Well, what comes off of there as the three little word and the Western churches is Catholicism and the Catholic Church, which brings me back to how many uh, people that we have in our congregation who have this tradition and history in their roots from the Catholic Church. And so today, I wanted to remind us that for a thousand years, the church was on one path and agreed on the way to do church and be church. Now, some of the things that I find fascinating about the ancient church are in the Orthodox church that they typically um, trace those churches by race. So you'll get the Russian Orthodox Church or the Slavic Orthodox Church. Now here in our area, there is a Eastern Orthodox Church where they all uh, worship together. There's actually one in South Bixby. 
Um, they have in the Orthodox Church the veneration of icons, or in the Catholic tradition, the saints, both very similar. Both the Orthodox and the Catholic Church both have seven sacraments, unlike we have two, baptism and communion, if you didn't know what those were. Um, they have the Orthodox Church has this incredible understanding of heaven and earth, and they see heaven as the true true time and what's happening on earth is just temporary and so we come from heaven the true time and we're here for this little bit of time and then we go back to heaven uh, and the real realm of what's happening in the world and in the churches they um, have beautiful uh, uh, churches that are set to be a transition or a glimpse into heaven. Most of them have an area where the front of the church or the holy uh, things of the church are separated by a screen or something, and then where the people are are behind that. And so they have this understanding that when you're in the worship space, you should be able to see this glimpse of heaven and what it is like in heaven. In the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church both, they study the traditions of the church, or in the Orthodox Church, uh, it's very similar to Judaism, where they look at the scriptures and then the midrash of the church fathers or the writings of the church fathers. In the Catholic Church, they hold up scripture and church tradition for the authority of the people in the church. And so today, I thought, as we look at this incredible history and the roots of where we have come from this first thousand years, what are the things that we still hold that have been gifted to us from the ancient church? Oh, I've already done that. There we go. Gifts from the ancient church. And the very first one is this gift of ritual. Now, um, ritual can be powerful and life-giving. It can help shape, shape our lives and give us discipline. The ritual of praying at the same time every day is something that connects us to the holy. When my kids were young and we would sit at the table every night at dinner, we would say, what was the best thing that happened today and what was the worst thing that happened today? And then we would say a prayer from my husband's tradition where he grew up uh, until the kids had it memorized. And so that was our dinner table ritual, where we connected our faith to our daily lives. My best friend in high school was Catholic, and every Christmas Eve, I would go to midnight mass. And it was so cool, and there was all this stuff going on, and they would wave the incense, and people would touch the water, and they still did it in Latin at that time. And I, to be honest, I had no idea what was going on around me, but there was something sacred and special about being there and being connected to that. And so that brings us to the second thing that we have, this reverence for the sacred. What I love about being United Methodist is that our churches still hold an altar table. We still set aside things and recognize them as being authoritative in our life. We still light the candle to remind us that the presence of God is always with us, that this is sacred. When I have attended some funerals in spaces that look like an auditorium at a college or just a concert 
concert hall, I'm always amazed that people worship there every week and they don't miss those things. Uh, our stained glass windows here have symbols of our faith. We have the dove as the Holy Spirit descending. We have Pentecost. We have the symbols of the communion table right? These things are sacred, and they create this attitude that there is something special about this place. And then the last thing that I want us to think about is the power of the Eucharist. Now, as a clergy, there is nothing that irritates me more. I almost hate to tell you this, but <laughs> there's nothing that irritates me more than people who visit and goof off in line on their way down to the communion rail, or people who've already taken communion who then visit while other people are about to take communion, right? Um, and so I always, when I lead, I always say, stay in an attitude of prayer until everyone has been served. Let's recognize this. In the, in the Catholic Church, the Eucharist is the reason they gather to be in worship. The Mass, if you've been to a Catholic wedding or a funeral, they often take communion or the Eucharist and have that liturgy. Uh, most of my friends in the Catholic Church where I grew up, not only did they have Mass on Sunday and Saturday night, they had it every single day. And some of my friends whose parents were Catholic would go before they went to work every day and they'd go to the eight o'clock mass. And that's that taking communion every day was this reminder of this connection to the holy. Now, most Methodist churches only take communion once a month, which uh, is surprising to me because when you ask them why they do it once a month, they say that's the way we've always done it, right? Because that's just what we do. But the reality is that the reason we do that is because when the church first started the movement, we didn't have enough pastors. And so the pastors would get on horseback and they would ride what was called a circuit, and they had so many churches they were expected to go to every month. Well, they would make sure they got to those churches once a month. And so that's why we take communion once a month, because those preachers on horseback could only get to church once a month. It's so funny because John Wesley said we should take communion as often as we can. Uh, another story that I love is about a church who uh, they, when they would carry in the cross for worship, they would get to a certain point and they would make a big dip. You may have heard this story before. They would make this big dip. Well, the new pastor came and they said, what's with the dip? Why do, why do we do this, right? And everybody said, well, I don't know. We've always done it that way. And so there was this conversation and everybody was asking, talk to some of the old timers in the church, why do we dip? And they said, well, there used to be this thing that hung on the balcony there. <laughs> we had to dip to go under it, right? So tradition and ritual can begin in ways that we don't understand. And sometimes we just do it because we've always done it that way, right? Uh, it's so funny. Uh, and so I love that here at Faith, we take communion at the 8.30 service every Sunday. I actually take communion twice every Sunday because I do it here at 8.30 and then I go over to Living Water and we do it there every Sunday as well. Because when we started the church, we had a 17-year-old who was on our leadership team and we took communion every time we gathered and she loved it and said, let's keep doing it. And we decided 
listening to her was worth doing, that her voice mattered just as much as the older folks in the church, and so we still do it. And to be honest with you, the power of the Eucharist doesn't go away just because you do it more often. If anything, it reminds me of this holy mystery, this holy connection that I have to something that I don't fully understand, but is beautiful and sacred, that I am connected to everyone in that space, those who've gone before me and those who will come after me. That is a beautiful ritual worth doing. And so, for the next few weeks, we will be trying to understand these very deep roots of our faith. Where have they come from? Uh, when Abraham was asked to start something new, he said yes. When Jesus arrived on the scene, he did something so radical and amazing and different and said yes. And then we, over the course of our history, have other stories where people said yes, but today we recognize these first 1,054 years where there was only one single church. I want to end with a story. My cousin Emily got married in 2018, and on her honeymoon trip, as they were traveling, she went to the tomb of St. Francis of Assisi. Now, she was raised Methodist, um, but still knew the significance of St. Francis of Assisi, and while she was there, she said she wept tears of joy. And so, of course, she's texting me, um, her pastor cousin, because she knows I'll get it. And she's texting me, and she said, I am weeping tears of joy, and I feel the presence of our grandparents. Well, they had died in 2012, and here she is, thousands of miles away from Oklahoma, and in that sacred place, she felt them. She felt connected to the holy, and she gave thanks for the roots of the faith that they had passed down from generation to generation to her. It's a beautiful story, and we all have stories like that where someone has invested in us that the roots of the faith are a part of us. Where we come from matters. It shapes us, it helps us define ourselves. Our faith and where we come from matters. What we've said yes to, what we have not said yes to. It's a journey. We have to decide what do we take on, what do we pass on to the next generation. And I hope and I pray that you will stay with us for the next three weeks as we continue to unpack this history of the faith and these deep, deep family roots that are not just mine or not just my cousin Emily's, but are all of yours as well. Amen.